I'm Stephen Renner. I'm a colonel in the U.S. Air Force, professor of strategy and security studies here at the School of Advanced Air and Space Studies. This is Tom Hughes. Tom was uh, one of my instructors here at SAS 11 years ago when I was a student, and I've come back to join the faculty. Hello, I'm Tom Hughes. Happy to be here. Today, Stephen and I are going to discuss some of the issues that are uh, a concern to us here at the school and to our students. The first will be the efficacy of strategic bombing in war environments. The second is the role of air power in irregular warfare, which is the increasingly normative form of warfare these days. And the third topic will be what is next for air power going forward into the future. Well, regarding strategic attack, Tom, as you know, I'm a, a close air support pilot, having flown A-10s on and off for 20 years, and we didn't uh, do much in the way of strategic attack uh, from my jet. But of course, this is of continuing interest to the students. The history of air power in general and the arguments on and off about strategic effects of air power from really its beginnings in 1908 and beyond this is something that is never entirely clear in students' mind when they turn up, and we read theorists and historical example and sit in seminar room and argue about it, and then a good number of those students and go on uh, either to lead men and women in combat or to plan uh, air campaigns or try to devise strategy for the nation and our allies that incorporates the air weapon in a way to achieve strategic effect. Well, I don't fly anything in the Air Force inventory, of course, but I do sit around here and listen to lots of people that do and have for about 20 years, about the same time you've actually been flying Air Force airplanes. One of the things that has always been most interesting to me among our students is uh, a general skepticism about the efficacy of strategic bombing. They are serving in an Air Force for which the efficacy of strategic bombing has been a touchstone uh, since 1908, as you mentioned. But they're not cynics on this issue, but they're skeptics on this issue. They often see the effects of tactical air power, the effects of close air support and interdiction as more measurable and more real and easier to hang on to and grab onto and quantify. Yet they know that this promise of air power, that relatively fewer resources used in war can yield relative a greater political effect rests so fundamentally on the strategic use of air power and an independent mission to affect enemy behavior independent of things going on on the ground or at the sea in terms of war is really the reason that the Air Force exists as a separate service. And so they struggle with this and a good deal of our curriculum is designed to help them struggle with this. And it is not in every situation, it's not in every condition and circumstance where strategic air power is the right tool. But there are places where it can yield stunning success. I'd argue that in places like Bosnia and Kosovo, although the missions look tactical there, air power is being used in a very political way in 1995 in Bosnia and 1998 in Kosovo. You can look at Operation El Dorado Canyon in 1986, the F-111 raid, into Libya, which fundamentally changes a dictator's behavior in the Arab world, Gaddafi's behavior. And that is a pinpoint use of air power that doesn't cost a lot in terms of material, and it costs very little in terms of lives, but has great strategic impact. And so there are these examples that 
the promise is fulfilled. And yet our students remain cautiously, and I think in a lot of respects appropriately skeptical of its uniform application in a strategic way. Brilliantly said. And I'm reminded that we've just come back from Vietnam on a field practicum where we took the class for a week to Vietnam and uh, put loafers on the ground as we went around Vietnam and examined the Vietnamese war from the other side of the hill, as it were, to try to gain the perspective of the Vietnamese and to see the air war in a different light than we would get in seminar room. What did we learn? What did you get from your students in your seminar there, thinking about, in particular, uh, the linebacker offensives? And how did the uh, students react viscerally to both the images of destruction and also the images of the piled up B-52 hulks that were part of the museums there? And and what does the linebacker say about strategic air and its effectiveness? The linebacker campaigns, one and two in the spring of 1972 and in the fall of 1972, were the Climatic air campaigns, of course, in the Vietnam War, where a relatively conventional strategic air campaign using B-52 bombers, our frontline major bombers at the time, are bombing uh, in a relatively independent way, targets deep inside the enemy homeland, near Hanoi, Haiphong Harbor, in a way that is consistent with longstanding strategic attack doctrine in the United States Air Force. And they do yield political results. And I think our students take away from the trip there is the importance of understanding their enemy's decision-making cycle and their enemy's decision-making apparatus. In strategic attack, in strategic bombing, you are essentially trying to get your enemy to behave in a way that they don't want to behave, so much so that you are engaged in organized and politically sanctioned killing on relatively large scale. And what you learn when you go to a place like Vietnam today is some insight into your prior or previous enemy's worldview and how they make decisions and what targets they value enough. If held at risk or destroyed, they will change their behavior. So much of the story of the growing and continuing quest for strategic attack inside the United States Air Force is a quest for material improvement and technological progress, trying to get the weapon system right, trying to get the plane sufficiently strong with great enough range and great enough durability to get to the target, to try to get the ordnance in its explosive capacity great enough to actually do the destruction that it's designed to do. And this is often known as the search for the silver bullet in the quest for strategic bombing. But the fact is that the efficacy of strategic bombing rests as much on the identification of a golden target as it does a silver bullet. Strategic bombing requires a target in your enemy's homeland or something the enemy holds dear enough that if its destruction is threatened or accomplished, they will change their behavior. And one of the things they learn on the Vietnam trip is We weren't as good as we might have been in our understanding of the enemy in Vietnam to make careful and discerning judgments about what the golden targets are. We've been pretty good over a 70-year period of time in the quest for the silver bullet. If you look at what a bomber looked like in 1940 and what a bomber looks like today, what a development. And if you take a look at what ordnance looks like in 1945 and what it looks like today, precision-guided, lethal ordnance, Boy, we've made great strides. We are still struggling to be able to identify golden targets. The point 
about the aircraft and the ordnance, I think, is very well taken, in particular if we think about the B-52 that sits not 100 yards from where we are. So the same aircraft that was flying in 1972 for the linebacker campaign, its silver bullet was a 500 or 750-pound weapon. So the 500-pound weapon is 230 pounds of tritonol explosive and the rest of it's cast steel. Those would have dropped out at about 80 of them in, in a full bomb load out of a B-52, but unguided. And so aimed as well as we could, uh, clear weather visually and in poor weather using a radar direction. This last spring in Mosul and continuing now in uh, Syria, as that fight has more or less left Iraq, B-52s are being employed, same airframes, no substantial changes to the airframe or the engines. Tremendous upgrades in the avionics, but the real difference, although the weapons are still falling from the same airplane that we were using 50 years ago, is in the bomb itself. And now we are possessed of laser-guided and even maybe more useful, because not hampered by weather, GPS-guided munitions that are incredibly accurate. None of that helps us with the golden target, but it does make the silver bullet much more accurate, and it, it shifts the burden now to a large degree from being able to prosecute a particular target to be able to find it. Yeah, and that's an important part of the equation, this idea of the silver bullet. But I think you're right. Our quest to find a golden target remains elusive, and it remains slippery. Throughout the entire history of military aviation, it seems to me, there's been two basic kind of targeting philosophies that have guided air campaigns and airmen through the decades. And on the one hand, you have the targeting philosophy of trying to find ways to affect the enemy will to prosecute war. And that relates to strategic attack and strategic bombing. And on the other side, you have a competing targeting philosophy that is aiming to undercut enemy capacity to wage war. And this would relate to the tactical air power and close air support and interdiction. And throughout 80, 90, 100 years of air power history, these two targeting philosophies have competed and have vied with each other. And one of the questions I like to ask around here in an essay question is to ask the students to develop an argument about which one of those targeting philosophies has borne more fruit over time with less expenditure of men and material. Targeting philosophies that have been designed to undercut enemy will and targeting philosophies that have been designed to undercut enemy capacity. I get a range of opinion. I got a range of opinion when I first started asking this question around here in 1996, and I get a range of opinion today in 2017. So this is a unresolved sort of a exploration, but it remains very much part of the Air Force's entire reason being and it's very much on the minds of our students. Well, of course, we hope that those targeting philosophy Venn diagrams overlap in large degree. If, if the enemy regime values its industrial capacity and its ability to make war, whether it wants to retain that in order to maintain some regional hegemony or just to keep the regime in power, we think that attacking the industrial capacity, the ability to field forces will also undermine the will of the government to persist. So sometimes we look for those targets that would be present in both of those philosophy circles. How did we do, do you think, using Vietnam now as a bridge to the other piece of this topic we want to talk about, irregular warfare? We have linebacker two, late 1972, harbors are mined, petroleum oil and lubrication facilities attacked. 
How did we achieve strategic effects? What were we after? Why did it work then when it didn't work earlier? And then what about uh, irregular warfare in general? Well, I think by 1972, the Vietnam War has become to resemble more conventional warfare. There's a conventional attack from the north down into the south, and so the American air power apparatus is able to respond in a conventional way with some efficacy. Strategic attack works to some level in 1972. The way it didn't work earlier in Vietnam, when the war is much more irregular and guerrilla in nature, which is, of course, what we've come to more recently. And this whole idea of air power's place in a world of irregular warfare is very much on our students' minds and very unsettled in their minds about how best air power fits into any kind of strategy or any kind of schema that uses a broad range of military and non-military levers of national power to affect enemy behavior and to pursue effectively national security and, and safety. And I think that's very much up in the air right now. I don't think any consensus exists on this issue among our students, from really full-throttled defenses of strategic attack and that we just haven't been allowed to pursue strategic attack on the one hand, to very solid explications that the best thing air power could do in irregular warfare is fundamentally and unabashedly support other instruments of national power, whether that be military or non-military. Some of our students, I think, believe that the finest contributions air power can make in irregular warfare, and they might be right about this, is humanitarian airlift. And in the hearts and minds fight that goes on, uh, getting medicine and getting food and water to populations under duress is far better than dropping any bomb on them. Well, that raises really the question of the strategic effect of airlift. Uh, we study the Berlin airlift from 1948 to early 1949, and we see how what might be argued as the first battle in the Cold War was won by air power, but not the sort of air power that would have been brought to bear in Berlin four years earlier. The city was cut off by the Soviet forces. Of course, the Western powers controlled the western half of Germany and three-quarters of Berlin. But Berlin being deep inside the Soviet-controlled zone, it was uh, one road in, one railroad in, and the Soviets cut that off, restricted access of the Western powers into the city of Berlin. And uh, we were determined to keep Western access to Berlin. The only way to do that was by air. So over the course of nine to 10 months, a massive airlift undertaken from U.S. and British controlled zones by U.S. and the British air forces. And we kept the city supplied. The majority of the aircraft were flying coal in, which would uh, the coal dust would find its way into every nook and cranny of those 1940s airplanes such that they would, were finding coal dust 20 years later. Airlift, again, very important strategically, 1973, when the Israelis are uh, facing possible defeat in the Yom Kippur War, and President Nixon approves a massive airlift. Earlier in 1972, the airlift to bring B-52s back to Southeast Asia and the ordinance that was required and the maintainers required to stop the Easter offensive uh, initiated by the North Vietnamese Army. Uh, the airlift in 1990 as part of Desert Storm after Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait, the United States and its allies moved a half a million men and supplies, mostly to Saudi Arabia. So there are historical examples of air power being used in a constructive as opposed to a destructive way. 
that achieve strategic effect, I think, for the U.S. and its allies. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think sometimes of the Berlin Airlift as one of the two finest examples of the strategic use of air power in the 20th century. And it doesn't relate at all to a silver bullet or a golden target. There aren't bombs being dropped. There are supplies being delivered. And it allows decision space for political settlements to mature and develop and become ripe to be placed in time and place. Well, you phrase that very intriguingly. So what's the other? Well, if I can just finish the thought on this, the the idea that the Berlin airlift is one of those fundamental early Cold War episodes that makes the Cold War cold, that East and West can come into direct conflict with each other. Soviet Union and the United States can come in direct international conflict with each other and it not devolve into general warfare. It is one of these early precedent-setting events that that allows the Cold War to remain cold. The other great use of strategic air power, in my view, is the great scud hunt in the first Gulf War, where we fly a series of airplanes in a weeks-long campaign from air bases in Saudi Arabia to try to interdict and to destroy scud launchers, these scud missiles that Saddam Hussein is lobbying uh, some, sometimes into Saudi Arabia and into allied military camps, but mostly into the state of Israel, the nation of Israel, trying to get Israel to become involved in that war, which would greatly have complicated the Western and Arab alliance in Saudi Arabia trying to eject Saddam Hussein from Iraq. And that's the strategy that Saddam Hussein is using with the Scuds. He's trying. But we to, found that we destroyed very, very few Scuds. So and, how how so was that a strategic and maybe, uh, victory? Maybe none, because the Scud hunt was in combination to uh, the Western Alliance requesting that the state of Israel not retaliate, not get involved in the war. And this is a very big ask: one country to another. This country is under attack by kinetic missiles, and we're going to ask them not to respond. That's a big ask. And what we're able to do with our own air campaign into the western desert of Iraq is say to the nation of Israel, please don't respond. You know it will greatly complicate our alliance structure here with a whole series of Arab nations and maybe collapse it. And we are doing everything you can do and then more in terms of trying to interdict these scud launches because how we designed the order of battle in the scud hunt wasn't necessarily designed to interdict any of it. If we were able to hit one or two of them, that's great, but we knew that that was going to be a very hard thing to do. And in point in fact, we're not sure if we were ever able to interdict one of these missiles successfully. But we looked at what the state of Israel would have been able to do in terms of their own air power and their own air force if they gotten full up involved in this war. And we looked at their order of battle in their air force. And so when we were designing our air campaign in the Western Desert, we took their order of battle and we decided we would do that and then about 10 or 15% more so that we could go diplomatically to the state of Israel and say, we are doing everything you can do if you got involved in this fight and then we're doing a little bit more. So please exercise national restraint in an incredibly difficult circumstance. This was a very hard thing to ask the state of Israel to do. So this was messaging as much as it this was, was. This was strategic messaging. Bombing. And again, it doesn't relate really to any particular target being hit at any particular time. And that's why I say that's the, the other great example is strategic use of air power. And you're right, both of them are counterintuitive to the normal Air Force way of thinking about strategic 
air power, which is very kinetic, a lot of bombs, a lot of smoke, a lot of things being destroyed. And in both instances, that wasn't the case. Our students are surprised to learn this. We do read about both of these things. We read about the Scud Hunt, and they are generally surprised to think about air power in this way. And I think generally enriched to think about air power this way. Well, with these things in mind, strategic bombing, strategic effects of air power not related to bombing, messaging, airlift, and touching on irregular warfare, what's next? How are these things going to change? What will be the continuing themes in air power, do you reckon? You're asking a historian this question, you know. Uh, And historians deal with dead people and dead issues better because they can't talk back. And I know you're a trained historian, too. These kinds of questions about what next are, are difficult. But I'll venture a guess or two. I think if you look at the long trajectory of air power and its development over 100 years, I think there are certain verities, there are certain constants that will continue in the future. Airmen will continue to believe to some extent that air power changes war, that it changes the calculus inside the character of warfare, certainly, that you can use relatively fewer resources to get relatively greater political effect. I think that remains an aspiration of air power going forward. I think the technological and material change inside of air forces themselves, what an air force looks like in terms of material and equipment and people will continue to evolve, sometimes very rapidly. It already has. If you look at an air museum that displays World War I aircraft and World War II aircraft and Cold War aircraft and early 21st century aircraft, you can't but be impressed with the change over time. And that will continue, I think, for the foreseeable future. Beyond that, I'm not so sure if I can become any more nuanced or specific. Can you? I can never be more nuanced than you. But uh, thinking about airframes and how they change, I'll tell you that having just this year been in northern Iraq, engaged in the uh, Operation Inherent Resolve, which is a counter-ISIS fight that was uh, successful in ejecting ISIS from Mosul, one of the things that struck me about the continuing evolution of air power is it's moved toward micro aircraft that are remotely piloted. So we saw this first from ISIS and then the Iraqi security forces adopted it as well. I mean, the allied use of relatively large remotely piloted aircraft is well known. I mean, we have Helen Mirren movies about these things these days. So those things were being used to our full extent with tactical unmanned aerial vehicles in the lower altitude blocks and then our uh, bigger vehicles up higher. But what was new to me, and I think new in general, was a way that ISIS initially used off-the-shelf hobbyist drones for first surveillance and reconnaissance, as we would have done 100 years ago. And then they weaponized them with improvising 40-millimeter grenades designed to be launched from the ends or from below rifles and put them onto these drones. They also use them to command and direct their uh, suicide car bombers. And they've done a lot of post-production videos that can be found on the web where ISIS is directing the VBID exactly to where Iraqi security forces troops would be. That VBID is a vehicle-borne improvised explosive device. So that's precision for a car bomb. So Using off-the-shelf quadcopters generally because they're stronger, by which I mean they have a higher altitude capability and longer range. So these off-the-shelf quadcopters are the type that we might buy for our kids and then uh, using them 
first as surveillance and then finally weaponizing them. And the Iraqi security forces, of course, saw this, and uh, they were unwilling to not have something of the same kind, and, and they bought very similar off-the-shelf items and started using them themselves, even to the point where they would fly them into buildings. And there's one example, at least, of a ISIS fighter trying to swat the uh, quadcopter down with the butt of his rifle. So this is now maybe small ball, and we're very far from B-52s and trying to compel the North Vietnamese to the bargaining table in Paris, but this may be where we're going in irregular warfare. Well, the enemy always gets a vote, right? A firm. And an improvising, innovative enemy will probably going forward continue to challenge the United States Air Force and the United States and Western allied nations that have developed over many years a very powerful and operationally astute conventional force, so much so that your enemy isn't going to challenge you on that battlefield anymore. They're going to do these other kinds of things that you just lay out. We're going to have to change and improvise in ways that are seeable only in vague and opaque outline at this point. What you hope for among our students is a agility of mind, a agility of attitude to make the adjustments that they will need to make when the time comes. Well, you beat me to it with the agility of mind, but I think that's exactly right. And that's something that you've long taught, which is patterns of thinking and habits of thought and uh, inquiry. And the best way we can arm these officers who come through this school and indeed any others is with a, a supple intellect and the ability to recognize when things are changing and come up with a creative solution to keep the advantage on our side. So thanks for that. Thank you. Let's hope.